you beyond the borderline this is a podcast dedicated to exploring in a realistic and hopeful way what it's like to live with borderline personality disorder and other mental health problems. My name is Aline and I am your host for this podcast. I want to issue a proviso at the beginning of the podcast which is that this is absolutely not a substitute for professional mental health and or medical intervention. So please seek out those sources of support if you need them. And I also want to mention that I will be discussing topics such as self-harm and suicidal ideation and addiction that may be triggering for a number of people. I aim not to discuss those topics in a detailed way as I don't really think that adds anything to the discussion and does not really fit in with the mission of this podcast. However, in a spirit of being authentic about my life with borderline personality disorder, those topics will be mentioned in this and subsequent episodes. And I will do my best to issue trigger warnings before I start discussions about those or other potentially triggering topics. Hi, this is Aline Durio and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Borderline. I was planning to make this episode an episode about jealousy and borderline personality disorder and that is going to be the episode theme for the next episode after this episode, if that makes sense. But for this month, I've decided to release another interview format episode, and I'm really excited to bring this to you. My guest this month is Johnny Crowder, and I met Johnny through the network that hosts Beyond the Borderline. That network is Mental Health News Radio Network. I highly recommend it because it has a wealth of podcasts on many, many different aspects of mental health, many different perspectives, some you may agree with, some you may not agree with, but it's a great resource for everything mental health from many different perspectives. So please do go and check it out if you haven't already. Johnny Crowder is a 27-year-old suicide and abuse survivor. He is also a touring musician, mental health advocate, and the founder and CEO of Cope Notes, a text-based mental health resource. Whether speaking at events or on the road with his band Prison, Johnny's first-hand experience with multiple mental health diagnoses ranging from bipolar disorder and OCD to schizophrenia uniquely equips him to provide creative insights into the pains of hardship with levity and wit. It was an absolute pleasure to interview Johnny Crowder. He's highly articulate and has a huge amount of insight to share about all kinds of things, including mental health advocacy, being a creative person, freelancer and someone who runs a business while also managing his mental health. He talks about his feelings about diagnoses, pros and cons, 
We also talk quite a bit about social media and Instagram. It was a really great conversation and I hope you will enjoy it and take something away from it. Even though it's not specifically about borderline personality disorder, a lot of what we discuss does apply to BPD. And as you will hear in the the interview, I share some of my own experiences specifically related to borderline personality disorder. So without further ado, here is the interview. Enjoy. I have a sense of everything that you do. You're clearly very, very busy and you have a lot of projects on the go. Clearly you manage your mental health very effectively. In my experience, sometimes I have good days and sometimes not so good days. I was just wondering how you manage to keep a balance. If we're talking about balance with projects, I have famously been not great at that. I'm the kind of person who... Um, I, I could chalk it up to OCD, but I, I, if I'm being realistic, a big part of it is that I'm very ambitious and very goal-oriented and very driven, which sounds like a bunch of good traits, but when you put them all together, um, it can make for a pretty imbalanced work life. So something that I've been trying to do is making sure that I front load my day with something I enjoy. So a lot of people say, well, I'll wake up and I'll work from the second I wake up, which is what I have done for a long time up until uh, quarantine. And then I really started trying to be more intentional about this. But normally I would just start working the second I woke up, like literally still in bed. I'm checking emails and responding to people. And um, then I think, well, if I have any time at the end of the day, then I'll try to do something for me. And inevitably I would work all the way through the whole day and never do anything for me. And then I'm too tired and I go to bed. So what I'm trying to do, this is going to sound trivial, but you can put whatever you want in place of this. But what I do before I start my work day is I make sure that I watch a car review on YouTube. Oh, lovely. Like okay. some, you know, some car reviewer and they're breaking down like some supercar, like a $3 million Bugatti or something. And they're like showing the interior and the stitching and the styling. And they're talking about all of this, um, just design. I love art. I love design. And it's something that isn't related to work. And I make sure that there's a buffer between me waking up and when I actually engage with my work. And lately it's been car videos, but before that it was, um, I, was I would listen to a sermon before I started work or, or some worship music or I would stretch. And I think just building in buffers before you start your day versus telling yourself that you'll make time for it later because you need to prioritize it. You need to front load your day with at least one thing that is just purely for you. It's not related to work. It's something that you enjoy and that makes you feel like a person. Car videos is really interesting. I guess I would insert like dog adoption videos on YouTube or something. <laughs> yep. My sister watches those like crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I, I totally get you. I mean, I've sort of tried different things over the years. And at the moment I try and do a little bit of meditation and a little reading what i find is that what can sometimes happen is i just go straight into that adrenaline mode and um i find when i go into that adrenaline mode it's much harder to sort of pace myself and keep myself in check my habitual inclination is to put myself last and not practice good self-care and i'll also say this there's this weird mentality um 
that putting yourself last is is noble. And I fall into this all the time. I think, wow, I'm such a good person if I don't take a salary from my business and I'm putting the money towards uh, building the company. Or I'm such a good person because uh, I was so busy volunteering today that I didn't eat. And that that's what makes me noble and a good person. Now I'm thinking like, that kind of behavior is so unhealthy. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't do it. I'm, I'm saying that I am guilty of this and I'm trying to work through it and reframe it. Cause people think, ugh, like, how dare you do something for yourself? That's not noble. And it's like, well, you can't really be noble if you can't serve people and you can't serve people if you don't serve yourself. So I think, yeah, there's this weird myth around, you know, if you eat ramen and you struggle and everything is difficult, that you're a better person. It's like struggle doesn't make you a better person. There are plenty of people who have never struggled in the way that we're talking about right now who are incredible people. And there are people who have struggled a ton who wound up doing some pretty not noble things. So I think we just need to draw that line of distinction where we stop thinking of doing something nice for ourselves as something that detracts from us being a good person. I mean, you mentioned volunteering and one of the things I find and in terms of my own sort of mental, not mentality, but it's a sort of, it's a sort of a belief. I don't know exactly where it comes from, but I've done a lot of volunteering also, and I, I've worked for charities and for nonprofits and stuff. And there's this sort of thing that I can get dragged down by, which is I'm putting this in big inverted commas, like it's, it's bad to aspire for money and it's good to aspire to do things for people as if they're like binary opposites, which they're not. When you, were, when you were talking just now, I was thinking about the ramen noodles thing. I'm on Instagram quite a lot because I, I promote my jewelry on Instagram. And I love Instagram. But one of the things that I, I've noticed a lot, and I think it can be quite, it depends how you interpret it, but I think it can be quite toxic, particularly for people who have mental health issues or other vulnerabilities. You get those posts on Instagram where it's like, hustle till you drop and all this kind of stuff. Raise your vibration. And that's all well and good, but that can be very destructive, can't it? If you're just forcing yourself and forcing yourself, it doesn't really, doesn't really work like that, I don't think. Yeah, it makes me think, so just to bring it back to the car thing, I mean, imagine someone saying like, you know, you're not a real car enthusiast unless you drive your car into the ground and you pop a tire and you don't do anything about it and your oil light comes on and you don't, you don't change the oil. You just drive that car into the dirt. Like that's the opposite. Like car enthusiasts really care about their vehicle and that's kind of what defines that being a car enthusiast is being really in tune with your vehicle and understanding, wow, I'm feeling a rumble. I should go get that checked out today. You don't yes. fire and think, well, I'm only a real driver if I keep going down the highway. And if anything, I should speed up and drive faster and harder. No, you have to be in tune with your vehicle. And I think that there's, there's a real toxic positivity wave, especially yes. during COVID because people say, I saw a post that was like, you know, if you don't come out of uh, quarantine with a new source of income, or like a new uh, income stream and a new talent and a new relationship and all that stuff, then it wasn't that you couldn't do it before. It's that you weren't strong enough that you would yeah. like you have all this time. And, if, and I'm like, hey, dude, yeah. 
Has, has it ever occurred to you that maybe people are having very real issues right now that are preventing them from building a new revenue stream? Like, I don't know, a global economic crisis? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it frames things to make it sound like it's your fault if you're yeah. not positive or if you don't yeah. grow today and it's, there's no grace in it. Uh, yeah, I think that's a lovely way to put it. That there's no grace in it. I, I am. Um, I know exactly what you mean. And I've seen um, some also like spiritual awakening, or you know, it's your choice if you have a spiritual awakening. And it's like okay. And it's funny because well, I don't know if it's funny, but the whole COVID thing. I mean, I'm, I'm actually really grateful in a way that I've had the experience of having to manage my mental health because those tools what really carried me through but I had my moment I got these moments where I was like I've got to lose two stone and I've got to do this and I've got to get a whole new collection of jewelry made and there were days where so much of my energy was spent just like getting through the day and on an even keel and I had to really try and forgive myself and and say I, I can't I that's an achievement it's that whole thing of like Beyonce's got 24 hours in a day and it's like well Beyonce's got a certain level of sort of support that the average person probably doesn't. <laughs> I, I think, I think some of that stuff is actually really encouraging. Like I see some stuff online. I'm like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I can do this. And I think when it becomes an issue is when we frame it so that we, we set people up to identify their failures much more often than we do to identify their successes. So when someone actually has a really positive day, like, you know, let's say you're trying to lose two stone and then you lose one and you're like, you, what you should do is celebrate. You should be like, holy cow, I did it. I am halfway to my goal already. I am so excited. But I think that toxic positivity says, it's funny, toxic positivity is simply negativity because it says oh you're not even it's your fault that you haven't lost two it's it's sort of it's shaming isn't it it's quite shaming mm -hmm. which i don't think is ever a very helpful spur to change or to development speaking of instagram i i i know that you're active on instagram i actually saw your post someone had messaged you been like hey bro you've got loads of money and all this kind of stuff yeah. and i saw your very measured clear response and i was just wondering because I, I love Instagram. I absolutely love it. There's, there's an aspect of the narcissism that I quite like and I, and I enjoy it as a visual platform. But obviously, like any social media, there are traps when it comes to that. So I was just wondering how you find being on social media because you're quite open with what you share about your journey and your experience. Yeah, social media is a net neutral, in my opinion. Um, and it's kind of like money. Like some people say like money is evil and some people say money is magic. And it's like, no, money is paper. So relax. And I, I think that over time I've been on both sides with social media. I've thought social media is evil and social media is magic. And it's like, dude, social media is a communication platform. Like it is, it, it is so subjective based on how you use it. So um, for a long time, I really, really cared a ton about um, how I came off. And I think that that's important. And I still do, like you said, I had a measured response. I'm very careful about what I choose to share. But in fact, 
I think that that's why I have a healthier relationship with social media now, because before I would share anything that made me look good. And I tried to share as often as possible and get as much visibility as possible. And now I still care about how I come off, but I care so much about what I'm putting into the ecosystem that I'd rather spend two weeks trying to figure out if I have anything worth saying. And then if I do, and there will be a net positive from it, so either someone will feel better or I will feel better or both, I will post it. If I look at something that I wrote that I wanted to share and decide that it won't actually help anybody or myself, I don't post it. So before I was on Instagram quite a lot, but now I'll post like once every two weeks or something. And it's only if I have something to actually say. So I think what's helped me a lot is vetting. Like I write every social media post in a Word document. I open up a Word document on my computer. I draft everything out. I edit it down. I change it a bunch. And then I sit on it for a day. And I decide whether or not this is actually going to bring any good into anybody's life. And if it's not, if it's just me complaining or ranting, or it's just something I needed to get out of my system, I'm still very glad that I wrote it. I just don't need to put it out for the world to see. What's very useful about that is it gives you a bit of a, or gives one a bit of a, to use your word, like a buffer between that impulsive thing, which I think is easier, isn't it, on social media to just go, boom, oh, I'm thinking this, boom, I'll put this out. Well, I wanted to go back a bit because this is, in quotes, a mental health podcast, a BPD podcast. I just wanted to ask you about whatever you're comfortable sharing about your mental health journey. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is around this area of diagnosis. Some people find it helpful. Some people find it, don't find it helpful. And I was wondering what your experience has been. Maybe it's changed over the years. I don't know. But I'd love to hear anything you feel comfortable sharing about that. Yeah, I think initially um, diagnoses were the reason why I was so reluctant to engage in treatment. So I say that it was the diagnosis, but it wasn't. It was my um, gut reaction to a word like schizophrenia. I was like, oh, I'm a monster or like I'm a criminal or, you know, you you associate all of this negative connotation with a clinical diagnosis. I mean, it's like a, it's a, it's in the dictionary. It's not weighted with positive or negative connotation. It's like a condition. So looking back, I was so afraid of those words that I never wanted to see a professional because I was afraid to get diagnosed. And then once I was diagnosed, I never wanted to see anybody about treatment because that would just reinforce the fact that I was diagnosed. I never wanted to tell anybody. And it was all shame-based and it was built into this idea that I had totally, totally inaccurate idea that I had of, you know, bipolar. If I have bipolar, what does that say about me? And I would, I would dress up this big monster in my head. And um, when I started taking psychology courses, I realized that they were just words that helped me identify what I was experiencing. And then they actually became incredibly useful, my diagnoses, because now I knew what to look up. I knew what research studies to read. I knew what videos to watch. I knew what books to rent from the library. And all of a sudden, the things that I was most afraid of, these labels, these diagnoses, now became my keywords to my recovery that I would read about and educate myself to the point where... If I would experience a hallucination, 
I would be able to identify that it was a hallucination. I would think, you know, okay, so I'm hearing somebody who's not in the room right now. This is an auditory hallucination that I am experiencing as a symptom of my schizophrenia. And when you can do that, you have all the power. So yeah. I, I say that at first I was afraid, and that says a lot about stigma in our culture. And that's what I try to do with um, advocacy is to break down that stigma. But in the meantime, I, I don't think we should get rid of diagnoses. I think we should do a better job of educating people about what they actually are. A diagnosis is not an insult. So you hear people go, yeah, this guy's going to go bipolar on me or whatever. It's yeah. not an insult. It's a diagnosis yeah. and we need to treat yeah. it. Obviously with borderline personality disorder, it's got a lot of, st I'm just laughing because it's just so, some of it is just so ludicrous. You know, when I read some of it, I'm just like, this is so ludicrous. This is not me. <laughs> this is funny. And I think what's wonderful is that, and speaking of social media, social media has facilitated a lot more conversation about mental health in general, which is great. There's a lot of conversation about anxiety and depression, and I think that's a little more accepted. But as you say, when it comes to schizophrenia, when it comes to personality disorders, even bipolar, there's still a bit of a, ooh, what, what is this? And there's this very inaccurate view. It sounds like, Doing a lot of your own research has really helped you. Dude, the, the more you learn about something, the less scary it is. So we're scared of what we don't understand, which means that the more you understand about your diagnosed conditions, the less afraid you are of them. So, I mean, just there's not a lot more complexity to it than that, at least in my experience. The more that I understood about the information that already exists about what I'm experiencing, the less I felt like a freak. It's like, well, wait a second. You're telling me millions of people are experiencing these symptoms and they're experiencing this type of symptom that I thought was only in my life. They're experiencing this. They've lived through this. And all of a sudden you feel so much less alone and you feel yeah. so much less singled out by your diagnoses. I used to think like, why me? Why me? And now I think, oh, I'm one of many people who is experiencing this. And it makes it feel so much less um, lonely and so much less terrifying to know that there's mountains and mountains of research based on the reports of millions of people just like me. It's, it's such a relief. Yeah, I, I'm smiling because I, I've been in that place, why me place, and why a personality disorder, and, and now I've got bipolar 2, and I've had all this, and they're actually very common mental health conditions. I remember, I remember one, I had a very bad sciatica flare-up. I remember I was at home, and it was in the evening, and there's a number, I don't know if you have anything like this in the US, but in the UK, it's not an emergency number, but it's kind of like a medical number that you Call, and then you get a doctor to call you back and say actually go to the hospital or you'll be okay mm -hmm. um so i i called about the sciatica and i spoke to this guy and he a doctor and he said are you on any medication and i said um i'm on an antipsychotic that's one of the medications i'm on and i said well i'm on this and i'm on this and he started laughing and i was like i don't know what's so funny about that i mean it probably wasn't the most elegant response but what he said is he, he said oh you'd be surprised how many people are on that <laughs> i was like my god only this tiny minority of people have to take this medication and it's actually super common i think that's a really healthy approach to have and it's true that lots of people have different variations and one of the things i have experienced what i understand 
based on the input I've had from mental health professionals is that they're like brief psychotic episodes. It's not like I'm going into a protracted psychotic episode. I don't hear voices, but I've had delusions that come on when I'm like highly, 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 highly stressed. Mm -hmm. And medication helps with that because it just slightly lowers the volume. But obviously, if I'm putting myself in positions where I'm not looking after myself and I'm really stressed or I'm really triggered, then that can happen. So I had this thing about psychosis. I was like, oh my God, psychosis being like, oh my God, and actually quite common. Obviously, it's on a spectrum and, and I wouldn't want to minimize distress that that can cause. But what I have learned is that it's on much more of a spectrum that I realized and people without any diagnosed mental health conditions have these episodes in response to stress and stuff. So yeah, yeah, it's important, I think, to really destigmatize the language. So on the topic of advocacy, which you mentioned, I know a bit about what you do, but I'd love to hear more. Would you consider your your music also part of that? And if so, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, so to me, everything falls under the same umbrella. So everything I do is related to uh, mental health advocacy. So I'm telling you, if you gave me a donut, I could figure out a way to leverage it for <laughs> mental health advocacy, like anything in my life. So music has been a part of my life since I was a kid. I started playing guitar when I was eight and, and I dreamed of playing guitar before I even got one. Like ever since I was a kid, I'm like, I want to be a rock star, you know? And everyone else is like, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a cowboy. And I'm like, screw that. I want to be a rock star. And as a kid, music was my calm down. Like anything, no matter what happened to me as a kid, if I could turn on the radio and listen to anything, even music I didn't like, if I could listen to any song for a couple minutes, it would bring my heart rate down, it would relax me. And the same has been true with playing guitar and now with singing. So music has been extremely therapeutic for me. And when I look out at a crowd when we're on tour and I see a um, couple hundred kids with, you know, face tattoos and they're wearing all black and they got piercings and dyed hair or whatever. I look at a room full of kids who are trying to cope with the same things I'm trying to cope with. Only they got kicked out of all the other places. Like they couldn't sit with the jocks and they couldn't sit with the cool kids and the preppy kids. And, you know, they were the odds and ends of all the social groups. And when I look out at that audience, I, I see, you know, these kids probably experienced self-harm like I did, experienced yeah. abuse like I did and bullying. And maybe they're living with diagnoses or maybe they're not. And they're just so outcast. Yeah, And I look at this group and I don't think, I don't feel pity for them. I don't look at these people and think, oh, you poor kids. All you need is someone to care. I think these are my people. These are people who have experienced the same things I have. And I feel such a sense of community there. Like I always say on tour, you know, we don't show up at a, at a metal show because our, our parents are happily married and we have lots of money and, you know, everything's perfect in our life. We go to a metal show because somewhere along the way, something went wrong. And we find peace in this metal and hardcore community and everyone's sweaty and jumping on each other and it's real loud and it's, that's our peace. So when I speak about um, suicide prevention or um, consent, or sobriety or things that aren't yeah. commonly discussed um, in a live concert setting. What I see from people isn't, oh, weird. What I see from people is thank you for saying something because we came here 
because we've experienced either firsthand or secondhand issues with consent, issues with sobriety, issues with um, suicide and self-harm. That's why we wound up at a metal show because yeah. those things have affected our friends, our family, or us. So when I look at Coke Notes, people deem that advocacy. They say, yeah, it's a mental health resource and you're serving like thousands of people all over the world with this mental health resource. And I think don't you dare discount the things that wouldn't classically qualify as a mental health resource like music and people have different resources for advocacy. They do painting or they do, you know, they serve at their YMCA or whatever, like advocacy and, and mental health doesn't have to look like what you think it looks like. And I'm telling Absolutely. you some of the most important self-care things that I do right now, other people would think, well, that's not mental health related. And I just think you don't know my brain. Because if you did, you would recognize how important this is for my brain's health. Something just popped into my head. So I work, uh, I, won't, I won't mention the name, but I work part-time with a women's community organization. It started as a day center now because of the whole COVID thing. It's actually gone online, which has been really successful because it's become like a Zoom, Zoom day center. So people come on and take part in workshops and stuff. And I, I originally started their teaching and, um, and then it just so happened that an admin position came up. So I, I took the position. And one of the things that I really struggled with, and th this is somewhat about my own stuff, is that it, it was very much, well, it was and is quite a faith-based organization. And I was just like, no, 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 this is no good, not with mental health. And people were coming and, and I was like, no, no, that we need to be talking about mental health. And part of that is valid because a few things have come up where I would hope that I've been able to have a conversation and say, actually, you might want to be a little careful just, just from my own lived experience. You might want to be a little careful with this language, what you're saying and so on, which on the whole has been quite well received, but it really opened my eyes that for some people that is, that is the portal through which they're going to feel comfortable starting to talk about their mental health. Mm -hmm. They are coming from a very faith-based place. They feel comfortable within that sphere. And with that, then they feel they can have a conversation. And it sort of really got me thinking that there isn't just one way. It's I have my own experience and my own sort of things that are comfortable for me. Creativity is a really comfortable sphere for me because that's my background. And I totally get, even though I'm not a musician, I totally get what you're talking about with that community and the live performance and, and having people come together and have the shared experience. But yeah, it's true. I think we, ha we have to be quite open-minded, don't we, about how people find the support they need. Obviously, sometimes people do need medication, they need psychiatric intervention, but it's a lot more than that. And different people have different interests. We're all, we're all different at the end of the day, mm -hmm. even if we have these mental health issues. I saw a video of yours. This is how I remember it. So correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but there's a, it's a video and it's like you're on the tour bus with your bandmates and then you start like rocking back and forth. And I was like, this is really great because this is, I'm not laughing because it's funny, but I was like, this is really good because this is like a real depiction of what it's like. And here's someone who's dealing with this and also out in the world, you know, doing their thing. And they've got people around them who are supporting them, who are empathetic. So that would be another question. Who are the people in your life? Like, how, 
how have you built your support system? Mm, for me, it has placed more of a focus on listening to other people and getting perspective and input from people who don't see things the same way as you. So probably the worst company, like not a company, like a business, but the company as in another person to, to, as a confidant, to serve as a confidant, probably the worst company that I could keep is someone who sees things exactly the way I do, because we, I wouldn't learn anything. I wouldn't move through anything. We'd both get stuck on the same thing. So um, like earlier today, before this call, I called a meeting with um, this guy who runs a healthcare tech company and I run a healthcare tech company. We do two very different things, but we can both learn a lot from each other. And he's a lot older than me. He has a totally different background than me. And I found such solace in hearing things from someone else's perspective and I think the main place we get tripped up is we think that our support system has to be our family, which I, I, I don't agree with. Um, anyone who's grown up in an abusive household would probably be better off trying to seek support yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so I want to I wanna say that out the gate. Um, you don't have to turn to your family. And also, I want to say you don't have to turn to care professionals for all of your support. So ultimately, I think the more you spread it out, the better. So if you expect your husband to carry the weight of your mental and emotional health, it will ruin your marriage, I guarantee it. So instead, if you can share some with your husband without tasking him with the obligation of fixing it for you, but then you talk to your friends a little bit, and then you maybe meet with a therapist, and then you journal, and then you do something creative, and then you exercise. All of a sudden, you've spread that out across so many different support systems, some of which aren't even human. If you have a dog, spending yeah. time with your dog counts as support. So absolutely, yeah. I think the trick for me has been, um, have you ever seen those um, beds of nails that people lay on for acupuncture? Yes. Yeah. Um, the, the reason why those nails don't puncture you is because your weight is so distributed to where each nail is only supporting a teeny tiny little bit of your weight, like a pound or something. I'm probably getting the math wrong, but you know what I mean? So the point of support isn't to have one giant thing that will impale you or something. It's spreading out everything that you need across so many different pillars of support that, you know, God forbid your marriage ends or something. You don't have to sacrifice your entire support system because your husband was 10% of your support system or whatever. So I think the trick is less about finding one thing that will keep you up and more about finding a healthy way to evenly distribute your mental and emotional health needs across a variety of different things so that if anything falls or maybe five or six things fall, you can still stay standing. Absolutely. And I, I know that's a lesson I've had to learn. It's certainly regarded as one of the symptoms, if you will, of, of borderline personality disorder, but I'm sure it's, it's not just about having BPD, but I, I, no, for many of us with BPD, there's that tendency to sort of attach on that one person and you want to make that one person, you know, oh, I've just met this person. They're my best friend. They're my best mm -hmm. friend in the world. Or this is the, oh, this is the person I want to be with. Or this is the job. Or this is the perfect job. And then 
you set yourself up for a fall and it can feel quite counterintuitive. I have a friend I met through doing mental health volunteering. One of the connections we have is that we both love dogs. She's looked after my dog before. The relationship has evolved. We talk quite openly because of the context in which we met. We talk quite openly about mental health. But actually what's evolved is that we end up talking about dogs. <laughs> we, go for, we, we go for a walk. We talk about dogs. We might have a little bit of chit chat because we know what's going on in each other's lives, but very tangentially. And it's mainly about what our dogs are doing and who said this to the dog. It's actually been a bit of an adjustment for me because I want to just, I want to have that intense thing, the person. And it's like, if there's that part of me that thinks, oh, if, if I don't have that, then it's not a real connection. But actually it's, it's much more sustainable and if I can focus on what I am getting, obviously I think sometimes our needs are not being met and we need to address that. But aside from that, it's a real learning curve. It's not, I've not found that easy personally to do. It sounds like you, you're very comfortable with that. I mean, is that something that's developed for you, that ability or? For a long time, I wanted, I just wanted whoever I was dating to fill that gap. So oh yes, like surely. as long as yeah. as long as I have a girlfriend, then she'll help me through everything, and that that yeah. is so unfair to a partner. So now I think I've I've I had to learn the hard way by putting too much pressure on um, romantic partners to to do healing, and it's not that I wasn't in treatment at the time too. So that's what people think, like oh, you stopped going to treatment, and then you started thinking that your girlfriend could pull the weight. That's not true. I was still in treatment. Like I was still taking medication. I was still seeing a therapist. I was still seeing a psychiatrist. I was still doing self-care stuff. But ever so gradually, I started putting more and more on my girlfriend's plate. This was years ago. And um, I look back and think how it, it wasn't evil. It wasn't ill-intentioned. Like I didn't want anything bad for my girlfriend. I just developed a sense of dependency on her that was unhealthy. So now I actually get excited about introducing new things into my like care ecosystem, like cars. I used to care so much about cars when I was a kid and then I kind of grew out of it. So recently this year I'm getting back into cars and I'm excited because it's one more thing. It's one more pillar. I can talk to people who care about cars. I can go to a car show. I can read about cars when I get stressed out and it's interesting and engaging. So each time I get to introduce something new to the fold that helps yeah. me kind of safely redirect my attention from whatever feels like a crisis or whatever feels hopeless to safely redirect that to something that's interesting and engaging and exciting for me. Anytime I get to introduce something new, that's a victory because it's one more pillar. One of the things that I often suggest to people in peer situations is, obviously, if you're in a place where you're stable enough and well enough, go, go and do an adult education course. I know there was a point for me, and I, I don't know if this was the case, when I first got diagnosed with BPD, I mean, I had a nervous breakdown, I was 39, and everything just came crashing down. And it was a case of, I have to give my full attention to this because I'm not in a position to do anything else. And that's what I did. And that was the appropriate thing to do. I got into this thing where it, it was all about mental health. It was all about, I've got a mental health condition. I'm in treatment for the mental health condition. Everyone I talk to mental health, it's all about mental health. And that was fine. But then I, I was almost getting frightened to sort of branch out. And I had to hear from people that, look, your whole identity is not about mental health. And actually part of recovery is 
learning to to find things that you enjoy that nurture you uh, and i really like that and that what you're sharing about the cars because i wouldn't normally think uh, about that as being something that would be part i love that phrase care ecosystem that would be part of your what nurtures you yeah i think you know? learning is essential because it reminds you that the world is bigger than you thought so you know, I look at it as, I'll use this example. So if you're seven and uh, you find out you were supposed to get an ice cream sandwich and then you find out you ran out and there are no ice cream sandwiches, it's devastating. And that's because it's such a giant percentage of your life. Like that disappointment is like 1% of your entire life at that point. You're like, I will never recover from this. But as you get older, you realize that little disappointments like that come up a lot and they represent a smaller and smaller percentage of your overall life experience. So I think it's the same for learning new things. Like, you know, if I wasn't learning about cars, I would be reading about sneakers. I would be reading about tattoos. I would be reading about um, architecture. And the more that you learn about any given thing, the wider your expanse of understanding is. And sometimes it just helps to put that struggle that you're facing in perspective, not to minimize it. I'm not saying, no, no. I'm saying to, I'm not saying to make a defeat that feels like 1% to tell yourself that it's less. I'm saying to expand your bandwidth. So it, that didn't become smaller, but your bandwidth became larger. It's, it's a perspective shift, isn't it? It's kind of being able to make a perspective shift. I thought that I was kind of orbiting around this event, but, but actually it's, it's slightly different. And, and that's an important distinction too. It's not about invalidating. For people who've had different kinds of mental health struggles, many of us have felt chronically invalidated in our experience in one way or the other and misunderstood. And so I think it's important to distinguish between minimizing and invalidating and actually going, look, you could look at it differently, be flexible and get off that locked, locked perspective. Will you say a bit about Cope Notes? Obviously people listening might not know what Cope Notes is and it's such, it's such a good idea. Thank you. So if you really want to hear it better than I can say it, just go to copenotes.com and it, there's tons of information on there. Um, but just just a quick little um, rundown of what we do. So we help people train their brains to think healthier thoughts over time. So we send one text message a day at a random time. And that text is written by a peer with lived experience. So we have that peer support baked in and it's reviewed by a mental health professional to make sure it's not, it doesn't say like smile or be positive today. Um, It's like actually helpful stuff. And they're all casually written, very informal and they're exercises and advice and encouragement and psychology facts and prompts that you can respond to. And you can text us back anytime, any day, anywhere. And instead of, it being a real-time conversation with a crisis counselor or something like that. There are other places that do that way better than us, and we're not trying to do it. What we're trying to do is provide a place for you to speak freely and openly about whatever you're experiencing without being interrupted, being judged, having that be shared with any of your employers or your friends or family. It's like a private, anonymous digital journal that reaches out to you on a daily basis. And over time, 
it trains your brain to think in healthier patterns. So it's a very complex, like cognitive restructuring neuroplasticity tool that I love. But my favorite part is that it feels so natural and casual as a user that you don't even know all of the incredible work you're doing when you use it. That's fantastic. And obviously I'll link the information to Cope Notes in the episode notes. Is there anything else that you would like to add or to talk about? I'll say this. There's probably somebody listening to this show right now, or maybe a couple of people who think all of this stuff is cool, but it doesn't really apply to me. And this is my go-to closer for any interview. It does apply to you. Save yourself the time and energy and effort that you're going to waste defending your honor. Just ditch it. Understand that if you have a brain inside of your skull, which if you can hear me, you do, that means that mental health applies to you. So please don't think you're exempt. Don't think, oh, this is for my, you know, really my roommate needs to hear this or, oh, if only my uncle could have heard this, this would really help him. No, this is designed to help you. And I'm talking Cope Notes, my band, Prison, this exact episode of this podcast, the Cope Notes podcast, anything that I do in my life is designed to help you, not your friends, not your family, not strangers, not your coworkers, you. So please, I say this all the time and I'll say it, I, I will die on this hill. Please remember that you are not exempt from the topics that you hear around mental and emotional health. It's not you're in one camp and everyone else is in the other one. We are all identical in one very key way. And that is that we all have to live through the human experience. And that involves stress, anxiety, depression, frustration, doubt, guilt, shame, all of it, loneliness. Please do not make yourself inhuman by excusing yourself from this conversation because we are inviting you into it. So pleased you could come on and have this conversation. Where can people find you? Um, I would recommend Instagram probably. So my Instagram handle is Johnny Crowder loves you because I do. And um, Cope Notes is just at Cope Notes, uh, wherever you use social media. But I would recommend um, if you need to get in direct contact with me, uh, copenotes.com you can scroll to the bottom and there's a contact form so if you're like hey I want to use cope notes for my school or for my employees or, or for my family or whatever or you just want to say howdy um, go to the contact form fill out that form and I will get back to you as soon as I can thank you so much and that's the end of the episode. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview with Johnny Crowder. I know I did. Please stay tuned for the next episode, which will be all about jealousy and BPD. And I have quite a bit of feedback from people who follow the podcast on Twitter, which I'll be sharing also. So a few quick reminders before I head off. Please take the time, if you haven't done so already, to leave a review for the podcast on whichever network you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Stitcher or however you listen to the podcast. Because as I always say, what it does is by leaving a review, you actually help people who might benefit from this information find it more easily. You can also leave a voicemail message for the podcast and I will post links on the Twitter feed 
for those of you who want to leave a voicemail. I always enjoy hearing from you and as long as you are okay with it, I will post your voicemail as part of the next episode. You can always tweet me suggestions, feedback at Beyond the Border 3. So that's at B-E-Y-O-N-D, the B-O-R-D-E, the number three, and that is the Twitter handle for Beyond the Borderline, or just simply go onto Twitter and search for Beyond the Borderline. I think that's about it for this episode. As always, I wish you a peaceful 24 hours ahead, and at the very least, a few peaceful moments in your day. Take care, stay safe, and peace out.